Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Welcome to the Interdependence Podcast, where we host conversations with some of the people we think are shaping 21st century culture. You're listening to the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hear the full version and support this series, please visit patreon.com interdependence. This podcast is ad-free and only possible through patron support. Thank you. Hi, everyone. We're back with a conversation with a close friend of the podcast, Jay Springett. Jay's a writer, theorist, and podcaster who falls into that special category of people where we can say with some confidence that whatever they're thinking about will be commonplace in a few years. We discuss some of his passions, solar punk, cultural fracking, universe construction, permaculture, Russia's real Jurassic Park, K-pop, reality modeling and aerospace, conspiracy theories, and more. We recommend that you follow up with Jay's various cultural contributions and hope that you're all having a wonderful week. Bring, bring, bring. Hey, Jay. Hey, guys. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. How are you? Not Pretty bad. good. Where are you calling from? Uh, London. It's not too wonderful. bad. Wonderful. London. Let's hope that stays the same. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jay, it's so wonderful to have you here. We've known Jay for a long time, and there's a million and one things to cover. But do you think we could just start out by um, telling us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, um, I'm a writer, a strategist, um, and I work with teams that are expecting like fast growth, um, mainly around designing social techno systems or environments that fit um the team's values or goals basically um squad stuff uh and i also host a podcast called permanently moved which is a weekly show 301 seconds in length i usually write it record it and edit it in one hour but not so much anymore because it was very stressful um and i've just uh, i've just launched a gentle web show called come internet with me um i do have to say um you know for those who might not be familiar um Jay, you're you're one of those. There's there's a few special characters in our lives where um, when we describe you uh, and and these other characters, um, and there's a guy called Jeff Witcher who also falls into that camp quite <laughs> regularly. Who, who maybe you don't know, but but is worth looking up. Um, where we're like basically whatever Jay's doing will probably be like a big thing in five to ten years. Well, there's um, actually a ger- <laughs> there's actually a German term called Lebenskünstler, which doesn't really exist in English, but it's like life artist. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know that sounds really cheesy to yeah, translate it, but it's like it's like your life's work is kind of an artwork. It's better it? to be a Lebenskünstler than not. I, I would, <laughs> yeah. I would suggest. Yeah, um, exactly. But but just to qualify it too, I mean, both these formats. Before we get talking about like the bigger topics we want to talk about today, but like both these formats, I just find really fascinating, right? Because what what you've done in a sense is find like the idea of a five minute podcast. Once you experience it becomes so obvious that you're like, why is there not a ton of these, mm. right? Well, there are. Um, Jay's recorded like <laughs> <laughs> a, ton, a ton more, though, is what I'm saying. Um, and saying this this kind of gentle web show concept you were saying, where, where come internet with me, where basically you and a guest browse the internet together, um, again, just seems to be solving so many challenges that we even have on this podcast, right? Like one of the things after I've done all the editing that I end up doing is, 
like writing a list of different uh, reference points for people to check up on through hyperlink afterwards. And then I go and compile all those in the notes and then invariably mm. someone in the chat will be like, well, when you were talking about this thing, um, you know, do you have a link for that? Um, yeah. And it, so I think in both cases, I mean, they're, they're, they're both like, they're, they're both like really cool things to, 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 to enjoy. Um, but in terms of the structure, the structure of them too, they just kind of make a lot of sense. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's, that comes as a compliment. Um, uh, but but maybe I mean uh, why you know why the five minute podcast? Um, well, initially years and years ago, like this is how long it takes me to sort of get around to do anything. But um, years ago, I was like, oh, I should do a really short podcast that would sit in the Twitter feed, and it was originally going to be um, three minutes and one second rather than three hundred and one seconds in length um, <laughs> to play on the permanently moved server code. And I was just going to do like explaining Wikipedia pages super quick. <laughs> <laughs> so the human GPT-3. Yeah, exactly. And then... Um, JPT-3. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, um, my, my robot name. <laughs> and, then, and then, yeah. And then um, I think it was Warren Ellis wrote a thing about how he wished podcasts were like shorter because an hour of listening to people chat, <laughs> which we were about yeah. to do now, is like sometimes yeah. like way too long. And then after I started the show, I kind of realized that you can, you know, turn it into an audio essay. And then with Mm tight editing, you can really compress a lot of information into about a thousand words. Mm -hmm. Like some of the essays that, that and and it's also like maybe a much better writer, very clearer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you do this on a weekly basis, right? Yeah. I mean, I used to make them in an hour and that was, that constraint was initially around actually just setting myself, the you know, to make, to actually like, what's the word? Force myself to do it in a way was like, oh, I'm going to start a five minute podcast or 301 second podcast and I'm going to make it in an hour. And then, yeah, after about hundred episodes, I decided that making it an hour is a little bit too stressful because <laughs> mm-hmm. you yeah. spend a week thinking about it and the extra time, I, it's usually about 90 minutes to make now, including writing the, the essay and cutting it and editing it and not posting wow. it. Um, yeah, so you just kind of the extra thirty minutes that you get around the edit, and also being able to like maybe do two passes of editing on the text that you're going to read. It's just much, you know. It it is that Pareto's law thing. You just get that little bit extra that I think has really improved it since I've started doing that. A couple of things come to mind, like when because I, I I I really enjoy them. I mean, the 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 classic, of course, is your kind of uh, your your you're rethinking rethinking the web by looking back at uh, the last 20 years of web experience and the kind of anxiety that it produces in you um, yeah but two things come to mind one being that you know it's funny because i mean we obviously we've been thinking about starting this podcast for some time as a means to basically move away from a twitter format right like in a sense yeah. um I mean, Holly, you're way better with Twitter than I am because you're way more like cold, off, cold, and, off, <laughs> and like <clears throat> and off it. But but I've noticed this in a, in a way like I use Twitter in a sense often, mm-hmm. kind of like a bit of a diary, like where mm. it, in so much as I'll sometimes I'll be tweeting something basically just to work something out. Yeah. Um, which is actually it, it works in some senses with like a small group of people who basically just understand that that's kind of what you're doing. But when it comes to like archiving something or having something, as you say, that's concise, um, where 
where you're deliberately saying exactly what you want to say, it doesn't really work that well. Or yeah. even not getting derailed. Like a Discord would even be better for that. Like where you have a group of people who kind of all have a similar baseline yeah, exactly. of knowledge because you have a lot of distractions. That's that's absolutely the case. Yeah, oftentimes, yeah, the, uh, yeah, and you end up just having a conversation about something you didn't intend to have a conversation about. Um, Which can be good, but often <clears throat> it's just like a derailing. Yeah, often just kind of <clears throat> takes over your life. And so in a sense, like the, this idea of... of concisely putting something down into into five minutes one seems like progress from that and number two i'm just like how cool would it be to have a magazine of you know 12 <laughs> sorry my, my early morning mathematics is not doing very well <laughs> of 12 of these you know like like what would it mean to have a, a, a you know an, an audio magazine of of 12 concisely written points mm. of the, you know a uh, a uh, uh, so in a sense, it, it feels like almost inevitability, an inevitability that, that that what you're doing here will will kind of grow and mature and be adopted by other people. I've always wanted a radio tool where I can just pull in loads of podcast feeds and just have it like play me the new um, Interdependence every morning on a Thursday at ten, but everything around uh-huh. that pick randomly, yeah, and have it Crazy. all. You know what I mean? So you could kind of oh, like, yeah. like schedule your own live radio and just have it on in the kitchen. Yeah, that's crazy. I've also seen other tools. There's, there's, I forget the name of it now, but there's a company that started basically to try and like capture all the context within podcasts. Um, some people will lament this because one of the benefits of podcasting, in a sense, is that not everything is like yeah, text searchable, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But it seems like that's their big idea. They're like, oh, you want to listen to people who are talking about GPT-3? Like we can basically maybe, you know, because transcription is getting to a point now whereby it's like machine transcription is, is kind of a, it's a solved problem, right? Yeah. It just hasn't, it hasn't spread everywhere yet, but like uh, the ability to transcribe audio to text is, is just not a problem really anymore. Um, and so you can imagine there also, it's like, give me a radio show with all the people discussing this particular niche topic this week. Cause I won't, I don't need to necessarily go out there and search to find like the podcast that I trust. I just want these opinions that you've kind of archived for me. I mean, it makes it all a lot more discoverable, but I mean, there is only so much attention that you can give. This is true. One thing I appreciate about, about podcasts is that they're not so, um, yeah, systematically or yeah, top down kind of, um, it's not superimposed how long they should be. So mm-hmm. you can have the two hour podcast, you can have the five minute podcast. And I approach those in very different ways. Like if I'm listening to a two hour podcast, that's like accompanying me while I'm going to the grocery store and yeah, like exactly. doing a bunch of stuff. If I'm listening to one of your five minute essays, I'm like sitting there and I'm listening to it. You know what I mean? That's so like, you can have different attention yeah. spans. I, uh, from just from the downloads i know that there's people that have kind of come across it and they've binged 50 episodes oh wow, <laughs> oh, wow. that's cool <laughs> you know, like, and then they, uh, it's crazy i mean i can't imagine listening to myself talk for that long <laughs> you do have a very you do have like kind of a, a a nighttime radio tone in fact your tone in the podcast is different from your tone in person i'd say it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very like calm because of this like, crazy low pass filter he's got on his voice yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah um and I speak quite close to the mic. Yeah, I mean, and another thing for us is like, actually, I mean, we go long, we go fairly long with this. I mean, that can go up to two hours, uh, at least for the patron episodes. And uh, part of my logic for that, at least, is that I quite like, if, like, I like long podcasts in so much as in a sense, particularly during COVID, they serve in a sense as kind of like a proxy for friends. Yeah. You know, that sounds really sad, but it's almost like, you know, when people aren't really hanging out with each other, 
like sometimes, I mean, there's some podcasts that do a really good job in like editing things down and, but oftentimes they can also kind of come across like press releases or something where I'm like, the nature of this conversation is so guided in a certain direction because someone wrote a book or they have mm-hmm. a particular project. And it's like, I really appreciate those podcasts where you can't, you aren't really anticipating what the listener might be interested in. Yeah. You know, like you kind of ambiently talk around something, at least that's where we're at right now, because part of the goal really was to speak to people about, you know, how they're doing and like what's on their mind right now, rather than saying like, you have the specific project, let's condense this down into the notes of what yeah. people should understand about it, you know, um, but there's all kind of approaches. I like, I just like that because it, 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 yeah, it just it accompanies you during the day and you don't really feel like you, you know, uh, uh, yeah, you don't feel like your attention is being directed so specifically. I feel like with Jay, that's difficult anyways, because you have a million and one different projects and I kind of want to cover a bunch of them (laughs) now. So let's actually jump in and start talking about some of these various things that you're working on. I feel like maybe it would make sense to start out just like getting the whole like solar punk concept out of the way, not out of the way, like (laughs) into the forefront so that we can kind of use that. We need to bring it into our reality model, I think. (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. Exactly. So I was watching a talk that you gave in Rotterdam and you kind of described how um, cyberpunk and steampunk um, are, you, you defined them and then you defined solar punk in opposition to those two things. And it was really nice and succinct and clarifying. So (laughs) it's also good for us to have, because obviously we had Bruce Sterling on recently. Right. To discuss kind of the the early days of cyberpunk and how that kind of bled into the cyberpunk into hangover. The valley. Yeah. Um, so having you on afterwards to represent solar punk, I think is really wonderful. But yeah, most people are going to be like, what the hell solar punk? <laughs> <laughs> so do you mind just giving us an overview of these concepts? Sure. Um, so the thing about cyberpunk is that, um, you know, Cory Doctorow said that science fiction isn't predictive of the future. It tends to be about diagnosing our current aspirations and anxieties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what was, you know, at the end of the day, what is um, cyberpunk about, really? And it's about the way that technology shoves human life into different levels of extraction, you know, which is where we get cyberspace from, you know. Also, it's during the 1980s, so you've got the rise of corporate power, neoliberalism, computations yeah. on its way. Robot limbs and VR goggles kind of come along with all of that kind of speculative thinking. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there's the the existential threat of climate change. Whilst you know was understood in the 1980s, it doesn't feature very heavily as a as an anxiety within that as a genre. You know, it's not part of its reality, whereas cyberspace is. I would say that um, steampunk that then comes along, um, which was a very slow burn genre. If you you know, it was on it was online for a very long time before um, kind of it broke out into the the mainstream as it were and that that to me is is not really a punk genre in it's more of a a glorification or an exploration of the past or a, a you know a reimagined past and it mm-hmm. i mean but the, the as a genre it really doesn't i mean could you imagine if steampunk had been in or been in opposition to empire and instead kind of reimagined the world with indigenous voices etc Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and even if the genre had only been let's say a third of the size that it you know ended up being in terms of an aesthetic can you imagine the impact that that would have had on the world that would have been amazing i would have been interested in it i like am not <laughs> interested in steampunk at well, that's, all. <laughs> uh, uh, just to qualify that further as well is like i often find for example i mean one of the nice things about steampunk in a sense is that by taking a historical <laughs> lens 
it gives you the opportunity to kind of speculate on counterfactuals, right? So it's yeah. like, and and but of course, when the counterfactual is entirely contained by this kind of industrial magnate, particularly in the West, uh, approach on things, mm-hmm. it does seem like a waste. I, I haven't thought about what indigenous. I don't know what steampunk would be in that case. Like, uh, you should read Eighty Days. Oh, sorry, not read. You should play the game Eighty Days, written by um, Meg Janeth. It's a um, mm-hmm. kind of a steampunk Phileas Fogg choose your own adventure game for a phone mm-hmm. and iPad, etc. And mm-hmm. that's amazing. It's mm-hmm. they go to um, uh, they go to the Middle East, and there's like airships and stuff, and yeah, cool. it's cool. And so, it's, I, yeah. I mean, to me, it kind of highlights how the aesthetics mm-hmm. are so intertwined with the kind of desires of the society that they emerge from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you get this kind of like schism between this kind of old and new. It, it never really made sense in my mind. And kind of imagine trying to imagine a future with the aesthetics of the past always felt like a failed experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I know before, I mean, we, we'll come on to solar punk shortly, but a lot of people like find solar punk. Um, they're always like, oh, but what's punk about solar punk? Yeah. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And like the sci-fi author, Mike Brooks, um, he says that to be a punk in some way is always an act of rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it indicates an unhappiness with society and a desire to move towards something else. But like, I don't see much of that in steampunk. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I, I mean, we'll get onto what solo punk is, but um, that's actually my only objection is that I don't like the punk part. Um <laughs> Because I feel in a sense that this kind of like 20th century, and I mean, I know that it goes further back than that, but the, but this, you know, the 20th century uh, punk moment of this idea that, that one, one's aspiration uh, ought to be encapsulated by, by the word punk. I feel like that's something that could be jettisoned. Um, yeah, but I don't know solar, what would replace punk is, it. solar punk is taking punk back and reimagining it. So let him continue. No, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> but I mean, also, I mean, I mean, we kind of bonded talking about like hardcore punk and stuff years ago, but like True. for me, being a punk is about being in a scene and um, being in a community of people working together, moving things, carrying things, creating things together, which is, mm-hmm. although there is that kind of aspect of like, like individual acts of rebellion kind of in the yeah. 1970s punk, but like as a it, it, punk for me is all about tight, tight knit communities, welcoming, um, anti-fascist, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think a lot of people miss when, when, you know, when they take ob- objection to the, the word punk in solar punk. It's true. And it's also, I mean, it, at my objection, at least there is also so wound up in my, you know, objection with the term of uh, in- independence. Right. I mean, I think like mm-hmm. I see the two as like synonymous and so interdependence is useful to break away from that individualist, like uh, focus on the individual. Um, and I wonder, yeah, what would the interdependence for punk be? Well, you solar know. punk. Yeah. Uh, let's get into it a little bit more. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Seriously, because punk here is being defined by an opposition to, but that not that needn't be an individual opposition. That could be a group opposition yeah. to another group. Well, let's do the the, <laughs> the definition. Um, I guess like the, the the short version is that solar punk is a movement in speculative fiction, art, fashion, and activism that's kind of seeks to answer and embody the question: What does a sustainable civilization look like, and how do we get there? like as a succinct short <laughs> very very short description nailed it <laughs> <laughs> i mean for, i mean for me um i came on as an admin on solarpunks.net in 2014 which is about two years after adam flynn who wrote solarpunk and note, notes towards a manifesto um started the blog and um you know back then uh there like solarpunk wasn't even a thing Per se, there was an anthology in Brazil that didn't get translated until twenty 
uh, there was an anthology called Solarpunk um, in in Brazil, but that didn't get translated into English um, until a Kickstarter in 2018. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and, you know, the very first post on the solarpunks.net Tumblr is, you know, on the need for new futures, except mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and it was primarily con- concerned with the idea that we're starved, starved for visions of the future that will sustain us. Um, and then it posts a whole bunch of questions, basically. And so not to uh, harp on this punk point too long, but the kind of punk aspect of solar punk is that it's in opposition to this kind of um, dystopian, I think you've called it low life <laughs> <laughs> narrative that was so prominent in previous forms of science fiction, like actually being optimistic and trying to envision a um, not a solution, but like various fantasies and options that in itself is a kind of punk attitude because it's in opposition to the mainstream. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's, it's quite oppositional to be optimistic and about the future yep. at this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's also a bit for me about when I first heard the term and, and saw the genre kind of, or the movement kind of developing, there's something about Mark Fisher's capitalist realism, um, in there, in that you know, there that that there we cannot imagine any other futures. Yep, yeah. And it's mm-hmm. easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, like one of the terms that I like to use around um, what solar punk is doing, we can talk about you know various aspects of of the the genre itself. But it's um, solar punk is kind of an experiment in refuturing, kind of like rewilding, mm-hmm. but refuturing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all that like every time that you imagine a solar punk future, um, it's always grounded in the in in reality in some sense because a, a great deal of solar punk as a genre is pulling technologies and life ways um, that already exist, moving them into a spotlight and then projecting them forward. So it doesn't take mm-hmm. any kind of magical leaps or you know the need for inventing magical technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I, I don't necessarily think that solar punk. Um, imagines that we're going to fix climate change. It's, you know, we're going to be fixing, <laughs> we're going to be yep. fixing the climate rather than, you know, um, not to say that, that it, um, it doesn't think that climate change is, is like a catastro- catastrophic given. Um, yeah. But I think it's, it's about the process of building a better world, you know, and there's loads of stories that are about reimagining critical creative economies or, you know, inclusion, reciprocity, sharing, etc as opposed to the kind of mainstream culture um of of kind of you know that mark diagnoses as kind of the capitalist realism which is defuturing i would call it you know which is you know like various various narratives or the let's say the tracks that narratives have to flow currently in kind of mainstream culture are all about closing down a different range of futures you know Mm -hmm. um rather than than opening them up can you give some examples of that um my particular rant is the Marvel movies, but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's get into that though. Yeah, that's, that's a great yeah, example. That's a great example. I mean, we we were talking about this on on Twitter the other day, right? I mean, we can talk a little bit about cultural fracking as well. Um, mm-hmm. But if you just think about all of the the big sci-fi movies that have come out recently, there's um, you know, Tomorrowland is basically the 1950s. Um, You've also got like the visions of the Jetsons, you know, like super high tech. There's obviously the um, cyberpunk features like Alter Carbon. Um, you've got like the lonely, lonely techno, you know, the lonely technological um, 
figures of like the lost spaceman that have basically been around since the 1950s you know there's the martian um yeah and then there's that like the newest mad max well you know a great film it just replaces fears around peak oil with climate change yeah yeah these these kind of futures like this is what i call cultural fracking um in the in that the entertainment industry is is kind of unable to um, the entire ent- like mainstream or large entertainment industry is set up to sell narrative to mass culture. Yep. So when you're, uh, it, you know, within the current business model, what the um, what they have to do is that they have to continually find shared aspects of mass culture that they can reference in the new things that they're making. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, like Ready Player One, obviously, is an example of this, which is just like the is an entire exercise in in fracking nostalgia, and yeah, yeah. you know, putting it together in in one book. Um, yeah, and in order for for like mass media to be successful, it has to continually reference, you know, what's what um what I've been calling shared cultural grammars. Like everybody yeah. knows, I'll be back. It comes from the Terminator, or yeah. you know, uh, yeah. or everyone knows lines from The Simpsons, etc. And it's just unable to break out of this cycle. Basically, the internet exploded, (laughs) exploded the point where uh, mainstream culture could definitely pinpoint shared grammars Mm -hmm. within the culture. And because of that, like there is a a kind of a window in which um, uh, mainstream media can't progress further than that. It's kind of like an end of history in a way, because like the... You know, in my in my worst nightmares, maybe Fukuyama was right <laughs> in a certain sense. Do you know what I mean? Well, in some senses, in some senses, he was. I mean, if you were to extend the metaphor to the entertainment industry, I mean, one of the reasons we were discussing it on Twitter is that there was a great amount of like, uh, dis what's the word disappointment that I mean, one the new Dune movie came out, and then as tends to be kind of the trend at the moment. When you think about like the the kind of consolidation of IP that these kind of big kind of nostalgic films rep- end up representing is what ends up happening is you know they'll they're kind of recycling this old science fiction book that was initially a science fiction film in the twentieth century, and then in order to kind of have the trailer or the score carry sufficient weight with that kind of common grammar as you describe it, what they end up doing is rehashing. I, uh, music IP <clears throat> from the time, right? So with Dune, mm-hmm. they like kind of got Hans Zimmer to like warp a Pink Floyd song, just as with Blade Runner, yeah. you know, they they reintroduced this IP from Frank Sinatra um, uh, for the Blade Runner score. This also happened with Get Out, which I actually thought, or, or uh, uh, it wasn't Get Out, it was Us, the, uh, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Jordan Jordan Peele, yeah, uh, and Get Out, which I actually thought was a remarkable film, to be honest, that actually breaks a lot of these trends in the sense of saying, okay, well, this actually felt like that film actually felt like something new, right? But um, but 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 then even then with the score, you had this kind of repurposing of a Looney song, the I've Got Five on It song from the Doom. That was in from us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it's kind of like this trope within within trailer music of basically recycling IP. And of course, the boring. It's the Dr. Luke model of like take a song from, take a hit from the 80s and then sing a new top line over it. Exactly. And then it's familiar enough. Exactly. Or the Virgil 3% model, right? right? Like take something and then change it just enough so that you can claim it's new. And that. <laughs> I despair. But when, when, it, when it is, it, it, it does despair, right? Because there's a core contradiction there, right? Which is that the reason that that IP resonated so much in the first place was because 
when it initially launched, there was a future, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. not the biggest Pink Floyd fan in the world, but you've got to give them credit. Like the wall was new, right? Um, Loonies and that kind of <clears throat> that trajectory of like incredible hip hop music at that time was new. Mm. It felt new and everybody knew it was new. That was kind of the appeal of it. Right. Um, and so, and so rather than kind of like taking bets on new things or in a sense, you have this protectionist kind of, uh, the, these protectionist kind of mega, uh, entertainment or organizations that, that basically play safer bets, most likely for, for the reasons that you described, right. Which is that the internet happened. They no longer have control over, uh, 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 you know, a fixed kind of centralized, uh, uh, reality stream or whatever. And so in order to, to maintain their standing, what they're doing now is repackaging all the IP they own, right? Like the Pink Floyd stuff is owned by Warner brothers, just as the Dune stuff is owned by Warner brothers and selling it wider. But it also, I think it goes beyond IP. I think IP is a huge part of it, but I think it trickles down into wider, like in the electronic music scene, for example, I feel like there's like, music before and after burial it's like burial captured (laughs) captured a kind of like nostalgic for something that maybe never happened or like you know capturing a a missing moment and then everything after that i feel like people were trying to tap into that kind of feeling and and let's also not pretend not to cut you off here but but i think that (laughs) i think the burial thing's a great thing to bring up because burial success is also very tied into mark fisher totally right like i was in london at the time and i think that the framing (laughs) of those those early burial records in tandem with Fisher's writing was a very foundational part of, of quite, I mean, the music stands on it by itself, but the, but you know, but Fisher was like specifically like uh, involved in that, in the dissemination of of how people contextualize that music. 100%. But I mean, even the burial, uh, the burial EP, like that first, the first EP, uh, Untrue, I mean, that's got samples of the bullets falling from Metal Gear Solid on it. Totally. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I mean. It's like, but we haven't found a way to kind of move on from burial as amazing as burial is like we, ha- there's no, I don't know. We haven't figured out the post burial or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it is really interesting, isn't it? Like in, in terms of, I mean, I was just listening to your, uh, like the last episode that, that came out was your, your interview with, um, or your sonar interview. And he was, <laughs> and, and he was just talking about how, you know, this is techno. Why don't we have all the systems to, you know, do all of the rights management and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, high-tech music, low-tech yeah. low tech, uh, infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. it's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna continue to sort of bash Ready Player One, um, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's more than that. Like, especially with the Dune as well. Like, it, I think there's a certain framing around like the Dune is a reboot or a remake. You know, it's it's like the culture can't, or not the culture, but it seems to me the media can't really frame it as it's not a reboot or a remake. It's a, it's an adaption. It's another adaption. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, like the, the best adaption of June is the, the audio book that came out in like 2006 with like 15 actors. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. With all sound design and stuff. And, and oh, yeah, well, I'll have to check that out. yeah, definitely. And the entire series of books is done by the same actors. So you can start book one and just go all the way through basically. Okay, cool. And recognize all the voices and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, it's just like, like, what's wrong with the word adaption? Why does it have to be a reboot or a remake? Yeah, but it's true. I mean, I, we were, we were talking about this with, uh, I can forget, I forget the guest on the previous one, but, but. It, there's, I think there's nothing hypothetically wrong with the idea of adaption, except 
the parameters for adaption are also somewhat constrained, right? Yeah. Like, and you feel that a little bit with Blade Runner and Dune. It's like <clears throat> Denis Villeneuve is a remarkable director, right? Like Incendies, for example, is one of my favorite contemporary films. It's a remarkable film, you know, that talks about uh, the wars, <clears throat> the wars in Lebanon, and it, 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 like, and then you get to a certain point whereby you're dealing with kind of hallowed IP, right? You're dealing with these hallowed stories. And there's very little that you're actually allowed to do with that, right? The, um, and we mentioned this at least within kind of like the genesis of our Spawn project, or at least the AI voice project, um, where the idea initially came because around about the time that Blade Runner 2046 or whatever it was called um, was coming out, we were approached um, to do a project. It was like a longer form project um, around the release of that film. And our initial proposal was to write a kind of counterfactual um, uh, like uh, a fanfic, yeah, fanfic kind of like update on it, in which you know, where basically you, <clears throat> we were looking at the kind of the original, the original film and thinking, well, you know, what's a what's a side narrative we can make here that's actually quite optimistic and that expands the expands the universe, but doesn't contradict anything that happens yeah. in the main film, right? Yeah. Um, and the second that that happened, the 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 people we were speaking to at least were like, you cannot touch Blade Runner IP, yeah, you know, so so. Yeah, it's like uh, legally protected. And then naturally, we're doing this in kind of we're s- smaller time than the director of the, the than the director of the reboot. But that being said, we were also by virtue of being smaller time than the director, um, you would think we would have more latitude to play with stuff because mm-hmm. there's less risk. There's going to be less people seeing the thing, which is to say that one can only imagine the kind of constraints that a Dennis Villeneuve or whoever yeah. that might be. Uh, Johan Johansson, for that matter. Who- well, I mean, this is very anecdotal, but I used to work at a children's museum and we did this Star Wars special and it was this huge controversy <laughs> because like it was a, it was actually a really cool team, like a very kind of like diverse and wonderful staff. And we were all kind of like, we don't really love the themes of Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> like, can we choose it? But anyways, it, like the board decided we had to do this and we got this style book from um star wars from lucas from arts lucas arts yeah and it was like this giant i mean it was like five times the size of the bible or something and it's like <laughs> these things that you could and couldn't do with it's these a brand car- bible, it's a I mean, brand bible that, right? and yeah. it was just insane like yeah. you couldn't do anything there's no update and so all of the kind of like problematics that were baked in and whenever it was written in the 70s or whatever those have to remain permanent because yeah. you can't touch them i think it's one of those questions like i wrote an essay kind of on this um earlier in the year called craving canon mm-hmm. and I think even even with you know like the, the endless arguments online around what is canon and what isn't and you know yeah. I think like Star Wars was one of those was was probably like the first property to to have a uh, uh, the law keeper or whatever his name was the master of the ho- uh, master of the holocron who was basically in charge of what is and what isn't canon and they even had mm-hmm. like different levels of of what's true and what isn't uh, oh, wow. there was like mm-hmm. G canon which was obviously like George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah, they had the G canon, and then there was like the expanded universe stuff, and you know, it literally went down different levels of of of, of truthiness. Let's say, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, and there was S canon, which was secondary canon. I mean, I was a huge Star Wars nerd. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I'm, su- I'm surprised, Jay. I'm surprised. Yeah, I mean, but as I say, in one of my um, uh, in one of my podcasts is that I I kind of I was done with. Um, with Star Wars when they blew up the canon mm-hmm. because um, 
I, as a fan, you know, I, I mean, I get it. I, I get why people are so mad about the new movies, et cetera, because, yep. you know, like you've invested all of the, you know, think about the thousands of hours that you've spent reading the hundreds of books outside of the movies. And, you know, there's then there's sure. all the expense on the toys and stuff and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, um, that episode's called Media Property Name Isn't Your Friend, kind of like mm-hmm. uh, from Terence McKenna's Culture Isn't Your Friend, because I think that mm-hmm. those two things are, are quite different, you know. Me, mm-hmm. you know, mainstream media culture and, and wider culture. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, like during, on your show, you, you know, you're talking around and quite rightly, you know, how do musicians get paid for their work and, yep. you know, mechanical rights and so on and so forth. But like the, the, un, the unintended consequence of, of say like, you know, recorded music and, and then the rest of the media is that, you know, the entire history of the 20th century, all of it's, storytelling characters etc have been completely captured and are owned by corporate interests yep Mm -hmm. you know people have absolutely no agency in the way that stories or the narratives that they identify with get told or get used yeah which is why people were so mad about star wars (laughs) you know Um, i mean and i get it but like there's the only you know the only solution is to write your own well, what was the name of that studio where they were trying to open up and allow kind of like crowdsource Oats, Oats Studio? Whatever happened to them? Um, do you, it, do you, it was you that South African that? director. What's his face? No, uh, Neil Neil Blomkamp, mm-hmm. yeah, who made um, uh, the big film he did was uh, with the Antwerp District, District, District Nine. Nine. <laughs> yeah, District Nine. Um, yeah, so Blomkamp had this idea whereby basically. As far as my understanding was, you know, he'd done District 9 and a few others and then been invited to kind of direct these kind of, again, big studio uh, works and ended up, I don't know, I don't know. I think he might have directed Elysium. I don't know. Um, Maybe. It it kind of fits. Um, But long story short, I get the impression that, like, he was having a really hard time pitching um, major productions to these big production houses, Um, in a sense, because he's kind of too interesting, right? Like, the guy... But one thing that he'd done is he'd set up his own kind of VFX team um, in LA because his films are really, I mean, District 9 is like remarkable and like remarkably distinct. Like there's a lot of like practical effects and stuff like that. Like they build these suits and they have their own kind of ways to to, to build their visual universe. Yeah. And so with Oat Studio, his idea was to basically have a, I believe it's a subscription-based studio where they in LA put together uh, these kind of shorts, these narrative shorts. Um, And the narrative shorts basically tell the origin story of something that could be uh, built out into a wider universe or a wider kind of like long form piece. Mm -hmm. Um, They're amazing. And then the idea is that the, the public or people who support the studio would both be able to have a say in what gets made. Um, participate in the writing or the building of the universe so like you know decisions that are made about kind of like ethical dilemmas or whatever like people can contribute through the forums Mm -hmm. and then all the assets that are made to build out that universe um are open source to everybody in the community so for example you can go i believe like on steam you can buy all of the custom characters that were made in that world with the idea being that anyone who contributes can also just go on blender and make their own side stories or something yeah. um I, super sick yeah i don't think it works because i've heard I mean, more about it the, the thing is though like 
I mean, I'm gonna, uh, I'm a, ma- you know, I'm a massive nerd anyway. But like, it depends <laughs> on what kind of, what kind of world and what the IP is trying to do. So, mm-hmm. like, so Star Wars and 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 you know, basically, like, became became the template for worlds, fictional yep. worlds. Mm-hmm. That point, you know, with all of its tie-in, um, tie-in models and so on and so forth. But then, if you think about creating this, you know, there are other worlds and. Uh, like in in that essay that I m- mentioned earlier, that I talk about like Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how like that is huge for all it you know for better or for worse. Like that that um that world is is a huge world in terms of its popularity and and you know the, the number of like tabletop RPG games that get set in that world and fiction and yeah. comics and so on and so forth. And that's because it's out mm-hmm. of copyright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on the other side mm. of that, you also have like. Games Workshop's Warhammer, what, 40,000 universe. Like, I'm not going to come on a podcast and <laughs> speak about speak about Warhammer, but like... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, you were almost thinking about starting your own podcast only about Warhammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because I'm laughing, be, I'm laughing like, in solidarity, James. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please subscribe so I can make it. And I also want to make a history, I want to make a Enya I want to make a podcast about Enya as well. Oh, wow. That, that would go be well. Really yeah, cool. that'd be really cool. Can you yeah. do some Enya-like vocals as an intro? <laughs> <laughs> I know There's, someone I mean, who can. Like, like, just as an aside, because I'm not, not going to talk about Enya either. Like, all of these articles <laughs> about, like, Enya is everywhere at the moment and, you know, just how big she is. Like, none of them mm. talk about the fact that, like, the last three or four albums are a whole concept that she's singing in Loxian, you know, a sci-fi <laughs> elvish language, and they're all on a sleeper <laughs> ship going to, the, going to a different planet. I mean, no, no one is talking about that. I mean, exactly, exactly. <laughs> why not? That's why people have to come here for this uh, yeah. juicy. Uh, uh, well, we can, yeah. yeah, we can definitely, we can definitely, uh, uh, yeah, we can definitely go deep on, uh, go deep on on Enya. The, uh, it's funny because I'm, 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 yeah, I, I'm also, I'm, a, I'm a clanad nerd. Yeah, um, exactly. Which, uh, which, which also never gets brought up in the Enya yeah. universe. I mean, sadly. It, yeah, especially, rarely, and it's rarely, never yeah. contra- it's never contrasted with Dylan going electric either that's <laughs> true actually yeah yeah anyway yeah the hallowed the hallowed enya reverb unit is the, uh, <laughs> is, the is the one you want um yeah but on this on this topic of stories though it's, it's funny it did come to mind when you say that like the cthulhu universe etc is you know it, it's past ip it did bring to mind it's funny i remember years ago actually being in holly's hometown and meeting like an extended family member and she was talking to me about joseph campbell mm-hmm. um uh, uh, who are you familiar with Joseph Campbell? Yeah. It seems really up your alley, but but I wasn't. But basically, there's this guy who was like a pop philosopher who I believe was very popular in the United States in the latter 20th century, um, the second half of the 20th century. Um, and his whole deal was about... I'm so curious what family member brought this up, but you can tell me later. <laughs> <laughs> I was being really... I mean, it was really cool because I was like, oh, I didn't expect to be you know, told about this person. Um, mm. but, uh, uh, but basically, he's a, you know he's kind of like a philosopher of like story archetypes. Right. And yeah. so like the his whole principle, exactly the monomyth, this idea that like a uh, certain kind of archetypes, like the hero's journey or whatever, uh, appear in all these stories. Like they appear in the Bible, they appear in the Quran, they appear in, you know, uh, uh, in the Torah, right? Like that. And actually when you piece things together in a sense, like humans kind of, always tell some uh, we always kind of come around similar type type of archetypes right which is i mean it's an interesting premise the challenge being in the sense that like 
again, he's talking about a wide and diverse array of stories that kind of everybody owns. Nobody really owns those stories, right? Mm -hmm. And in a sense, when you talk about the Marvel universe or the Star Wars universe, the Disney universe, whatever, um, in a sense, there's this kind of like attempt to to kind of artificially construct this these bibles you know and they really are bibles at this yeah. point you know like like it's quite difficult to imagine a scenario in a hundred years in which people aren't still talking about fucking you know john lennon you know I, I, no i mean not, no, no disrespect to john lennon but you know what i'm saying it's like it's very difficult to no totally i mean I, i'm thinking about being a child and like my early ideas of what femininity meant were constructed through visions of Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and like how insanely yeah. fucked up that I mean, is. <laughs> the thing is though, can you imagine if like if if those movies hadn't been sanitized? Like the ugly sisters, for example, like cut their toes yeah. off and you know yeah. um yeah. Mm. Little Mermaid kills herself at the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. But it's just it, as you say, it's 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 kind of a shame in a sense because yeah, you don't want to be kind of locked in that reality. Maybe, maybe this is a good point to bring back like some of the solo punk stuff, because I think, you know, it, it's really, it's really good to emphasize this. Like what is the movement? Is there anything so centralized as a movement or is this just kind of a theme that has emerged, emerged online that different people have picked up and, and, you know, where are the solo punks? I mean, how wide does this go? Hmm. For me, um, solo punk is kind of a, is a tag that people began to find each other around um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know the first time that I heard the word solar punk in like 2013 or something, I was like, yes, that's exactly, that's it. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Do yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, and, and you know, like when I first got into it, there, there weren't any anthologies or any books. It was just, it was literally tumblers talking to each other about what solar punk could be as a genre. And it's kind of like as a, as, as a, as a genre or a movement, um, because it's so much more than just speculative fiction, which maybe we can talk about in a bit, but um, it, it works. Um, uh, what's his name? Reese Williams talks about this in one of his essays, but uh, he, I think it might be called Against the Shitty Future in the LARB, but the book, mm-hmm. the, the, as a genre, it's happened the other way around. You usually get kind of textual uh, uh, like texts that form the foundation of a genre, and then mm. The, the the genre itself kind of emerges out of that kind of textual progression. Whereas solar punk was like, yeah, this should be a genre. <laughs> Lots yeah. of people on to- on Tumblr decided that it should be a thing, um, and then kind of memed it into existence, um, in a, in a sense. And then you know now that we're up to I don't know five or six um, five or six anthologies. There's full length books coming out. There's comic books being announced. I'm writing the introduction to a um, a Chinese anthology. Um, that's coming oh, cool. out um yeah and it, i mean but also one of these things it's like oh why isn't it bigger it's like these things take time you yeah, know yeah. Mm-hmm. it takes all it, it takes time for 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 momentum to grow but one of the like one of the things about solar punk that i find um extremely important is the way that it makes space for indigenous sovereignty queer yeah. politics um you know um humanity in a, in a kind of in a, in a sense it's in communion with its environment as in you know yep. in dialogue or you know sharing together um and all of those ideas are always wrapped up in in within kind of solar punk as a, as a narrative or or as a 
as a genre for me. And I, sometimes I look at some of the art that people post online and they're like, oh, this is solar punk. When actually it just looks like neoliberal eco washing. Mm. Um, and for me, my, I have quite an easy test around the, the kind of these sci-fi like futures. And it, if there's no people drawn in the image of your solar punk future, then it's not solar punk because you'll find that there's a lot of those, you know, those pictures that don't have any people in them <laughs> at all. Which is interesting because you said that you, it's not solar punk unless there's a person in it. I'm wondering how that kind of squares with this idea of decentering the human anthropocentrism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the word I'm looking yeah. for. And are there any kind of like um, narrative experiments where that's happening? So, um, so my friend Andrew Jana Hudson, or collaborator, um, he's got a story called The Mammoth Steps, which is a, mm-hmm. a, a kind of sci fi solar punk story about a mammoth that's been. Um, resurrected kind of in the Pleistocene Park experiment that Russia's got going on. Um, mm. And it's called to become an elephant. And it basically walks to India along with a, a, a minder or a friend, let's say. Wait, can you tell me what this park is that you were referencing? Uh, Pleistocene Park. Is this kind of like Jurassic Park? Uh, yeah, are? but real. Oh gosh, I haven't heard of this. Can you so, tell me what's so, <laughs> so? Oh my god! All right, so we're into like regenerative <laughs> agriculture now. <laughs> I call the apex predators. It's, it's the true, yeah. the true degrowth, degrowth project is a world full of velociraptors. Greta <laughs> Thunberg on the back that. of like. <laughs> so, Felicitasine Park is is basically an experiment in the in the permafrost in the um in the permafrost in the Arctic, and basically as the world warms. Um, there's these two, uh, father and son, there's a great documentary, these father and son that basically like live in a shed (laughs) in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) But what they're trying to do is bring back all of the animals that would have been there. Um, and they're, you know, shipping hundreds of bison from Canada and, you know, they've got like all of the different huge moose and elk and so on and so forth because, the disturbance of the permafrost by these big herbivores actually means that it freezes better when the winter mm. comes along, um, huh. which which means that the you know it's it doesn't melt as much in the next year. Um, and eventually, you know, like because they're Russia have said, if anyone recreates a mammoth, we'll put it here, basically. <laughs> Wait, this is this is open-ended question. Like they're sending out CRISPR kits, and they're like, "Yeah, whoever can make yeah. the first mammoth will." <laughs> yeah, well, how's it's kind it of for like you? the approach to the to the um, virus, or what is it called the um, the vaccine? The vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, I wow. mean, you know, they've got their speculative. You know, they're, they're all about those speculative futures. Totally. That's really interesting. So your friend's um, novel takes place in It's a short park. story on Terraform. Uh, okay. Um, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, and it's called The Mammoth Steps. But cool. I would also say around like kind of the more than human um, world, partly around its kind of centering or acceptance and or making space for indigenous voices, those things kind of flow into the genre and the thinking anyway. Like the, the yeah. very first solo punk um uh anthology in english is called the um as it's about uh it's about dragons which for me in my reading is kind of a metaphor for either magic or the more than human world being present in kind of a solar punk future 
Yep. Plus yep. there's like, there's a solarpunk witchcraft manifesto and so on and so forth. And are there any kind of large works of solarpunk? I mean, like, you know, a few things come to mind, for example, like the Wakanda universe that's present in Black Panther, you you could argue. If in you some still senses. like Kings. <laughs> oh, okay. So, Slam. <laughs> so distribution of power is an important theme in solarpunk yeah and i mean solar for, for, for me solarpunk takes its name not just from the sun but also from kind of the emerging um uh the, the emerging de- decentralized infrastructure of solar panels and, and so on and so forth mm-hmm. like oh, the the um there is a especially in in say 2014 2015 you know that the the, the, uh, the emerging discussion around infrastructure and kind of the politics of infrastructure really excited me. Um, I think mm-hmm. Adam Flynn says in the manifesto that the uh, infrastructure is always political. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, in solarpunk, and for example, he uses the 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 Spanish solar tax that was the mm-hmm. big debate going on last decade around whether people could um, have solar panels on their roof and be off grid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and you know that's a. a a literal solar punk narrative that's ongoing. And I mean, mm-hmm. you said in a, in a show recently about, you know, whether having solar panels on the roof and being under Elon Musk's yoke, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a, you know, that's like an e- easy solar punk setting. You've got two neighbors, they live next door to each other. They take down their fence so they can grow vegetables and have more room for their chickens. But at the same time, they owe the, they owe Musk. <laughs> The tithe, you know, it's you're, you're totally you totally preempted me there. As I was about to say, like, is Elon Musk a solar punk? I've seen some nonsense online that says he is, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but solar punks don't always agree, and I think that's one yep. of the things that is 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 really beneficial about it as a fandom and as a genre is that that it has fuzzy edges. And you know, I always like the term polyphony to describe kind of people's individual lines and narratives that they want to weave in 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 solarpunk worlding, um, which is where we should probably come back to. But um, and you know, occasionally you're in chorus, and occasionally you're not, and that's fine yep. because that's how yep. the world actually works. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you coin the term stacktivist? For my sins, I did. Yeah, which is a great, I mean, because that's the theme. I mean, basically, this idea of basically infrastructure and reading infrastructure and intervening in infrastructural conversations being like a core 21st century skill mm-hmm. is kind of a, a theme that runs through this podcast and, and all the work we do, actually. Yeah. Um, and I think that your coining of the term stacktivism, um, this would have been about 2012 or something? 2014 um, was when I... Okay. F- no, no, maybe it was mm-hmm. earlier than that, actually, saying that. I might be 2013. But I think it, it's really important here because, because it, to my mind, what that also does in a sense is is uh, when we talk about things like what a solar punk might be, um, you know, you don't really think about like, sci- you can think about cyberpunk technologies in the sense of like technologies that maybe existed in fictional universes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the benefit of expand- of expanding the the dimension of what it might mean to participate in a subculture to also include, you know, like tangible infrastructural projects that aren't necessarily that are creative absolutely but like aren't necessarily works of creative fiction they're actually doing things in the world that to me is really useful i mean i mean perhaps for selfish reasons but like but generally it feels like if if there were to be a a subculture that could compete with something like the cyberpunk or the subcultures of the 20th century it would be one that fundamentally understood that like people writing code are also subcultural participants right That, that 
that writing code is just as creative an act as writing a song. Or maybe widen it like people writing protocol or setting protocol. I mean, you see this recently with um, Kanye's tweet storms about kind of like equity distribution. And it's like, clearly these conversations are trickling up into his universe. Of course, you know, like the humor is not lost on me that his contracts with his producers are like some of the most like (laughs) (laughs) the worst worst examples. (laughs) But But yeah, it's obviously like there's some heat in that kind of direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's it's the new it's the it's the the new it's the new plane of 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 contention, right? It's it's not, it, and it is an aesthetic debate. It's also know? a very old battle. Yeah, you know, it's not a new it's not a new battle. But I, I also think that the that there is something exciting. So I'm going to use the word welding again, just because I've been reading Ian Cheng's book, Emissary's yeah. Guide to Welding, and I've been thinking a lot about. Um, simulation and tabletop RPGs recently as well. I've been reading um, uh, Playing at the World. Um, And uh, what does he say? So he says, like, Ian Cheng says something like, a world is a future that you can believe in, one that promises Mm -hmm. to survive its creator and continue generating drama. Um, And he he says, like, the the process of worlding, like, as a a term, um, is basically... um, navigating the unnatural art of creating an infinite game by choosing um hang on i'm gonna have to zoom in uh by choosing a present storytelling its past simulating its futures and nurturing its changes so welding is kind of like a verb in that sense you know it's a thing that you do and Mm -hmm. and solarpunk for me when i was earlier on when we were talking about how it's 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 a process of refuturing by bringing in the things that you can do now into and then projecting forwards um, I think it's it's interesting because I mean I've called it a mimetic engine because it's it's a way of framing solutions to problems that we are facing in fiction um, and uh, drama, music, so on and so forth, fashion. Um, a lot of solar punks in fashion are, are really into hand handmade stuff and quality. Yeah, you know, in kind of that, <clears throat> that anti fast fashion kind of sense. Like there's a lot of discussions mm-hmm. of quality and and the discernment of quality as well is quite interesting you know, to follow. Mm -hmm. But as a, as a mimetic engine, a a solar punk story should be able to, you know, create a bubble or, you know, a bubble of futures in someone's mind and then, and then look around themselves in their own environment and be like, well, this could be better. And there are real practical steps that we can take to make it better. I think like guerrilla gardening is like a model, you know, (laughs) in a sense, you know, it's just like, oh yeah, this could be better. Let's go out and do it. And this, uh, uh, as opposed to the making uh, uh, mammoths in a lab, gorilla gardening is not, for those listeners who are confused, uh, gardening gorillas. <laughs> in <Nice>. Siberia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, wow, I wasn't expecting it to go in that direction. Um, but this reminds, me of, <laughs> this reminds me of a, um, of a quote that you sometimes mention by Madeline Ashby. Uh, yeah, um, it's to talk loudly and in detail about the future because you can't manifest what you don't share. Yeah, sick. I love that. Yeah, sick. that was her uh, kind of end of year advice that she gave a couple of years ago. But it's so true and, and, and it's exactly what we should be doing. And also I think interdependence as a podcast is, you know, you're talking loudly about things that uh, you'd like to see in the world. Yeah, and I mean, uh, uh, that's nice. Thank you. Thank you. It's tr- but it's but it's also, <laughs> I mean, it's it's a position. It's like earlier when um when you're describing um your criteria that I didn't know before of a solar punk image is one with humans in it. You know, it's um a lot of the reason we've been particularly interested in this topic is 
there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of uh, uh, parallels there with with stuff that we've been trying to do within the musical space, right? Like Proto was like, hey, we can work with machine learning and also have it all be about humans on stage mm-hmm. and about you know like uh, these kind of very very old, very deep, very diverse singing traditions. It doesn't have to be about Western you know canon. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and and in a sense, this this is done kind of in parallel with following certain conversations in the in the fields you're talking about, but also just generally like it's kind of a cool thing to do. And I mean, I wonder like it's worth maybe refer- it's it's worth maybe like having a a toy debate here because um, one thing that like we'll often run into in a sense that there's kind of two dimensions to this, right? Like one is that because in a sense like Silicon Valley California ideology optimism based around technology has kind of been commandeered by um like the venture capital set right like that yeah um people are people are burned out of optimism actually they're burned out uh, of that and so one thing that like we'll often run into and and it's often like really baffling but it's kind of like you know by virtue of us being optimistic about certain technologies and trying to you know, think of ways to make the world better, we're often conflated with Silicon Valley solutionism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Silicon Valley solutionism. So that's one thing to, uh, 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 or maybe that, that, that that's, that's like one kind of like elephant in the room, maybe for the doomer set, you know, like, um, how do you disentangle, uh, uh, necessary kind of positive visions and practicable work, right? Like, this is the thing is the thing that frustrates uh, you know uh, uh, how do you reconcile that also with just people with the fact that the world is kind of burning and i mean i have an easy answer for this but it's worth asking you um i mean partly i mean solar punk is not a, like as a genre it's it's not utopian in the sense that it you know everything must be perfect it's just not dystopian mm-hmm. so and also i mean it, it recognizes and i think most people involved who are writing and participating in it you know they, they recognize that there's a quiet fascism in other people's utopias. You know, there's mm-hmm. you know, that, that question around, you know, utopia for who? Of course. Um, so for me, solar punk is around communities or scenes of people existing and doing the work en route to a better world. Yep. And, you know, there will always be conflict and, you know, conflict generates drama um, and, you know, there will always be conflict <laughs> yeah. of a certain, you know, interpersonal or whatever. Well, it also makes me think of like Haraway's staying with the trouble, yeah. right? It's kind of like, and that's always my position on these things is it's like, I can totally understand that, you know, a great many people who are optimistic about issues of technology um, do miss huge parts of the story and do wield their utopias to the detriment of other people. And yet, uh, whether it be impending climate crisis or just economic collapse or whatever the fuck scenario is, it's also an untenable position to be afraid of making an optimistic gesture, you know, that, that you can't, yeah. you can't, you have no choice to wallow in these things. And so, I mean, the Harrowayan principle of like running toward the fire in a sense appears to be the only responsible thing to do. Right. And, and that's, and that's exactly the point is that like, you know, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully we're somewhat consistent on this is like, nothing we would propose or talk about pretends to be a panacea, Yeah, you know, because actually like, I mean, one of the narrative conceits, I think of like part of the problem and part of the solutionist problem generally 
and I rail this at like Spotify and like streaming fatalism. And this is, is the conceit that any one person has all the answers, right? That there's mm-hmm. one, one technocratic design that anyone could come up with that's going to solve problems for all people. I think that that conceit itself is, is ridiculous. So we've seen the, we've seen the fallout of that. Um, uh, but, but yeah, but then like, then what, you know, there's always, cause kind of like, mm-hmm. then what it's like, yeah, like I can pick apart a gajillion ideas all fucking day and yeah. we still got to do something, you know? Just yeah. Like- <laughs> I mean, Mikey Oswell had that great quote about, um, if all you've got left is critique, it's, it's a cul-de-sac and you've already lost. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like visionary mode, as he calls it, is basically, you know, no critique without proposing a solution. Yeah. And even mm-hmm. the act of Great. proposing gets you out of that trap. And it's hard. I mean, to go back to the Fisher point, it's like, you know, I was sitting there and I'm, I could, it's so much easier to write a story about time travel than it would be to write a story about an, like a hyper efficient rail system in Europe. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the one yeah, story the, kind of yeah, writes itself. You say that, I mean, if you live in America, then everyone thinks that it has a hyper efficient rail system. Well, they've never been to China then, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's the point is that you need multiple competing proposals, but you yeah. want to, you want to feel like that activity is happening and isn't kind of uh, shortchanged by this tendency that we have to shoot things down immediately. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably, I mean, with, with the, the whole thing about like mainstream media needing cultural grammar, to to, yep. to resell itself i think i mean we're probably going to see a lot of media made about the pandemic because you know the logic oh, of that yeah. means that everybody knows and can relate to it or you know at Absolutely. least being locked down or being there's trapped gonna be in so many house. bad records my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah but hopefully it like jostles loose some co- some interesting conversation well i, I hope all the new records coming out sound like the animal crossing soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> but that's a, that would be the honest thing to do actually it's just like oh yeah we're just playing video games right now. sorry guys yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, um, Matt Cahoon recently wrote earlier in the year on on his blog Xenogothic about how capitalist re- realism is kind of ending. Yeah. Um, uh, and and that um, one of the dangers of of kind of capitalist realism is that 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 book in itself is being subsumed by the process of capitalist re- realism. You know, <laughs> like all of that. <laughs> you know, some of those. I mean, we've already used one of the catchphrases in the book today, and 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 those catchphrases kind of become internalized or subsumed by by kind of the the capitalist realism. I'd love to read that. It's funny. It, it came to mind recently. So so um so for example, you know, we've been doing this interdependence thing, and like you know, one of the difficulties at the moment, obviously with COVID, is like we're we're trying to be really sensitive to not kind of bash people over the head or like over promote stuff at the moment. Um just generally because like people have bigger problems in in the world, you know, and like, we're trying to build this archive that hopefully people can find on their own time, you know, and like, but one of the the negative sides of that is that usually, you know, when you promote something, you kind of get this opportunity to, to hear, uh, to hear kind of, uh, critical voices of what you're doing, you know, and, and recently I was added to a, um, to a private Facebook group in which people were debating, um, uh, interdependence as like a concept. I've made some meme and people had it up there. And the good news is it was about 80, 20 positive, negative. Yeah. Um, but, but some of the negative stuff in there was, was talking about, um, for example, like on this podcast, we've invited people from Google and from Microsoft, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and, uh, one of the contestations there was, you know, like, well, how could you put, uh, put forward a, an optimistic vision of, of interdependence when you're kind of talking with the enemy that was at least their framing or something, you know? And, 
And it was quite nice to have this conversation because I was like, look, like, I mean, this was specifically around politics of, uh, or the topics of machine learning. I was like, first off, actually, the people we were speaking to, I really wouldn't classify as the enemy. I don't think that like, you know, Google has like over 100,000 employees, surely not all of them are the enemy. Um, but, but beyond that, like when you're dealing with topics like machine learning, you also can't really seriously have a to- have a conversation about impacting the future of those things without talking to representatives from five or six companies mm-hmm. that honestly are the decision makers in that field, right? Yeah. Um, and so the counter argument in a sense to that was, again, kind of almost wielding um, Fisher's capitalist realism as a weapon against kind of sticky, incremental, uh, difficult progress, right? Because the counter argument there would be, well, in, in a sense, accepting a future in which machine learning is controlled largely by a couple of nation states and about six multinational corporations, you know, in some way, you could argue that that is capitalist realism. Whereas to me, I'm like, well, this almost it shows in a sense, the kind of the limitations of that critique, right? That yes, in, in kind of like a meta sense, it is very difficult to imagine a future with that, with that capitalism, particularly when you're talking about these specific issues where you have no choice um, but to negotiate with power, right? Like, um, yeah. And so for me, that I'd be interested in, in reading the the blog post you referenced, uh, just because I've had that exa- that experience recently, where I was like, if I'm really honest with you, outside of this kind of like hypothetical, abstract kind of philosophical discussion about like a future, you know, if you want to impact the future of machine learning. Um, you know, ignoring the fact that it's controlled by six to seven multinational companies that really aren't going anywhere is not going to get us anywhere. Yeah. You know? And I end up feeling like this kind of capitalist realist at that moment in time. And I'm like, well, that's part of the problem of this stuff being wielded as a weapon, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, this is kind of a, a little bit around Solarpunk's, Solarpunk as a, as a narrative strategy. In the in the essay on the political dimensions of cyberpunk that was written in like 2015, which actually riffs yeah. off Bruce Sterling's "Old People in Big Cities Afraid of the Sky" line. <laughs> um, cool. uh, and in it, it basically says that cyberpunk strategy should be to be to create pockets of progress and imagination within larger political landscape of decay, deadlock, and the long emergency. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. which, which is, uh, and, and it goes on to say, like, in light of their power, overthrowing the mega rich is a dicey project, and one perhaps mm-hmm. left to a different kind of political aesthetic. Instead, Solarpunk can challenge the capitalist status quo by nurturing alternative economic arrangements at the community and network level. Yep. Yeah, you yeah. know, and this is this is kind of the, the refuturing thing, you know, which is like opening up these pockets of possibility. Absolutely, it's really interesting in light of the. Um... The podcast episode that we did with Jesse Walden. I mean, you're talking about like yep. a venture fund. Absolutely. That is, you know, the very definition of kind of like capitalist it's power. It's a venture capitalist yeah, fund. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but willing to kind of, you know, go all in with this particular fund um, towards kind of decentralized and, um, you know, collaboratively owned uh, platforms. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting and it kind of complicates the narrative. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm really interested in, in the a lot of the people that are writing about exit to community at the moment. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. exactly. In a kind Can you of, give some examples of that? Well, I, I mean, I don't think there are any. I think it's just a discussion right now, isn't it? In okay. in terms of like the way that you set up your initial VC, um, the way that you set up your your company um, in its kind of articles of um, uh, what's the word? Like charter. Or yeah, whatever. yeah. The articles of of formation or whatever the word is, it, uh, blanking me at the moment. 
but uh you know you can say that you know the 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 end goal of the project is to exit to community which yep. means that kind of that instead of funding 100 in my mind it means instead of 100 funding 100 startups that are going to you're going to get one unicorn you're going to fund 100 startups and then all of them are slowly going to pay back that investment and then eventually yep. like you get the money back plus interest and then you move on like i'm really mm-hmm. interested in kind of the squad wealth kind of the the, the squad on the on the squad wealth thing i'm really interested in in um the way that people form organizations and the way people work together and the kind of values and even kind of the technologies that they use in order to be able to work together in certain yep. And I think the future is going to look a lot more like film sets, you know, where yeah, everyone yeah. comes together for a you know finite yeah. period of time, and they all work together. They'll you know you've got the directors and assistant directors, and the, you know the the head of cinematography and so on and so forth. Everyone comes together and does the thing, and then they break apart into smaller teams that are you know fairly solid and work together all the time. Yeah, it's just it, 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 I think it's just important that we we also think about the kind of future where structures of solidarity and also um, responsibility, let's say, are things that you actually enter into willingly. Yep, you know, yep, yep. So you join an organization or a guild, for example, and you enter those things willingly because you understand the rules and you, know, you want those things to, and, and, you know, and, and you align with those rules and values and so on and so forth. Um, I had that, had that te- yep. temporary total institutions podcast that I did ages ago. Just kind of about that. It, it, I mean, I think I think it makes a lot of sense, and it, it, it and it necessarily kind of complicates things. I mean, I want to I want to skip skip a little bit to. I remember like years ago, you wrote a really wonderful piece called uh, "Seeing Through the Debris." Um, yeah, and the idea of this piece, which I'm going to butcher, where I think at least this correlates, is that. Um, in a sense, you were talking about like reality models. So the idea being that, you know, you have like a official reality, right? Which is very, I mean, this this works also with Star Wars and the world building stuff we were talking, the universe stuff we were talking about earlier. And then you have this kind of like fuzzy space outside of original reality, uh, official reality, sorry, um, where all these possibilities exist, but people just aren't quite familiar with them, you know? Yeah. And I mean, and I think at the very least uh, with what we're describing is like, you know, my position at least is that if one were to, for example, be critical of contemporary capitalism, which I think is obviously a very, very important position to take, then one must also update your priors to the, to the extent by which you can kind of steel man what contemporary capitalism indeed is, right? Like, Mm. um, and when you start seeing uh, venture capital funds talking about exiting to the community and giving everybody equity from the beginning, if your position is one that you are uh, fundamentally anti-capitalist, you need to be able to have a counter-argument to that configuration, right? Yeah. And so, so centering that configuration and saying, actually, you know, and that's been one of the things like we've been trying to do, at least with the podcast, is saying, look, like, if we're talking about interdependence and we're talking about different potential uh, ways in which this can go, you know it actually helps to qualify some of these uh, more optimistic ideas about interdependence to say, look, like this isn't granola fucking sci-fi writing, right? This is not that we have anything against granola sci-fi. Absolutely not. But you know, but, but this is, but this is actually happening, you know, and a lot of people don't know, like, you know, if you, if you were to, if you were to explain to to people, some of the weird configurations that have come out of the crypto space, as much of them, as much as scammy as some of them can be, you know, people would see this as being like a narrative that was taking place in 2050. Yeah. yeah. You know, 
that I mean, we're talking about like people, characters like Andre Kronje or you know, uh, uh, we, I don't know if you if you caught this, but the 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 guy behind the guy behind Zamp, Bill Drummond, who named himself after the KLF, who routinely burns tens of millions of dollars of tokens. $30 million worth of tokens yeah, in thir- one go. Exactly. An anonymous person who owns and burns $30 million worth of tokens in order to maintain their anonymous reputation within this Twitter ecosystem. <laughs> I mean, it's like... You know, you you like yep. explain this to people, and you're like, "This sounds like something that would be in a in a cypherpunk novel from the '90s," but yep. like, is just kind of happening in real time on Twitter. But people don't even know that that's part of official reality yet. Yeah, yeah. I always like to um, open talks at um, festivals and events with kind of like, "This is all happening right now." Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorite things is China building a rain making network in the um, in Tibet that's the same size of um, in kind of area as Spain. Yeah, describe that. I saw that in one of your texts. Can yeah, you describe that a little bit. Well, I mean, wow. I'm 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 not entirely sure how it works, but it's kind of like these these essentially like machines that sit up in the mountains, and they I think they give off heat and they cause water vapor to um, uh, condense, so you get more clouds the other side of the mountain range. And Kate Bush's cloud bursting is just playing <laughs> yeah. ambiently. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, and th- this is like, that's geoengineering and geopolitics all mixed together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, totally. and you know, it's happening right now. There's dudes, presumably dudes, but you know, there's anonymous Twitter users burning $30 million of tokens. You know, there's, it's just all sorts of, meanwhile, all the atolls are going to be drowned in the next 50 years. Oh. Yeah, no, it, it's a challenge. And as I say, it's, it's something we've run into too, where it's like, you know, because particularly in, in like topics like AI, machine learning or whatever, like, because they're kind of, they carry with them the burden of this 20th century kind of kitsch, you know, you often run into a scenario where we're like, no, 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 like what we're discussing is like real and is happening. Mm-hmm. And actually what I found really cool about the um, the debris uh, story you, you, you mentioned, you mentioned Chef Van Gaal and I'm probably brutally mispronouncing his Dutch name. <laughs> Um, but this idea of like a reality funnel, right? Would you mind going into that a little bit, particularly around the the Lockheed Martin, uh, the plane? Because I think it's a really useful thing to kind of clarify for people. And, and and I think that model of like reality funnels of basically trying to take things that specialists maybe know are already done, right? We always have this this scenario. We talk about this with like uh, with machine learning and voice. Mm-hmm. I think we we even said this in the in the Richie Horton conversation uh, where I always like to. You're listening to the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hear the full version and support this series, please visit patreon.com slash interdependence. This podcast is ad-free and only possible through patron support. Thank you. (laughs) 